right, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to another conversation. And Acts chapter 6. This is what we're going to talk about today. It's found on page 30 of your notebook if you don't know where it's at. And it's not a very long chapter. There's only 15 verses. So um, it'd be really interesting to see what good stuff we can get pulled out of this. Um, specifically in our notebook Bible, we're going to be talking about Stephen accused of blasphemy. However, like always, did anybody get a chance to read the whole chapter ahead of time? If so, um, what were some interesting things you pulled out of that? Um, I don't think we'll read the whole chapter. Honestly, there's words and names of people in this chapter that I don't quite know how to pronounce. I think if I were to read all of that, I'd make myself... <laughs> yeah, those names. Huh? <laughs> there's some tough ones in there for sure. But let's just start. <clears throat> yeah, why don't we? Why don't we just? Um, we'll read the chapter. Let's read the chapter, and then um, we'll take a couple minutes and we'll kind of apply our questions to um, verses eight to fifteen, and then we'll have a discussion after that. So, uh, let's see. Mom, would you want to read the first five verses, please? First five. Okay. Mm -hmm. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there was a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procure, Pro. We could skip over that if you want to. <laughs> Nick, <laughs> Tim, Parmesan, and Nick, a convert <laughs> from Antioch. <laughs> they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Oh, that's good. Just do verse 7 and then we'll jump. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Wonderful. Uh, Joe, do you want to read some for us? Sure. You just go ahead and finish that second section for us. <clears throat> now Stephen, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both uh, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. Mm. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. So they came, seized them, and took them to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against his, his holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Mm. <clears throat> right on. So let's start at verse 8. Well, well, before we get there, did anybody... 
Does anybody have anything to share, you know, in the first seven verses leading up to our main passage we're going to focus on? But did anything come out of there that was interesting to you guys? Well, that's where they had chosen the disciples, the spiritual leaders, mm-hmm. chose <clears throat> deacons, mm-hmm. what, we, what today we would call deacons, uh-huh. to minister to the the um, basic needs of the people like feeding the widows some of the widows weren't getting taken care of Uh, these guys were the preachers they they were busy teaching and preaching and so they said well let's appoint other people to help with that need Um, so you know the lesson don't try to do everything yourself appoint people that can help you with the tasks that need to be done right on yeah I like that um I kind of I kind of focused a little bit on that as well. And I'm reading, I want to read this quote real quick on verse 3 where it talked about, so they chose. Uh, yeah, select from among you seven good men of reputation. I'm reading this book called Keep Your Love On by Danny Silk. And there's a quote here about the concept of being chosen. Um, and I thought about, like, that was. it's really interesting how these seven men didn't come to the apostles and say, we want to do this. Correct. The apostles came to them under the direction of the Holy Spirit. But listen to this concept, um, this paragraph here. I choose you, quote, I choose you, Mm. end quote. Mm. This is the foundation of true, lasting relationships. It is the foundation for God's relationship with you. As Jesus declared to his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus chose you in the most difficult of circumstances. He chose you while you were in sin, while you were his enemy. His side of the relationship with you does not depend upon your choice, but entirely upon his choice. The question is whether or not you will learn to build your relationships with him and others upon the foundation of your choice. And the really... I don't know, that, that kind of like when I read that verse in verse 3, my mind kind of went to that quote. I thought, that's really kind of interesting. There's a little tie in there of how the apostles were, you know, seeking and they were choosing people who, you know, based on who they were. I choose you because of who you are, you know, kind of, kind of thing. So I just wanted to share that. Um, verse, at the end of verse 7 stood out to me. It was kind of interesting one with Luke. He mentions, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. I thought that was interesting that he threw that yeah. in there. Right? Because usually the priests are against anything that has to do with Jesus. They're fighting against it. So, like, if you think about it, like, how, if you were a priest, how much more difficult would it be for you to become obedient to the faith? A lot. Right? Because, like, your whole... You have your congregations, you've got your your people over you. I mean, to start telling a different message, that's huge. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Anyone else have any thoughts there on the first seven verses? Okay. So, verse 8. Stephen accused of blasphemy. This is going to be the bulk of our discussion. Um... 
I wish they listed when they talked about Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. I wish they gave some examples. Mm -hmm. But Acts doesn't actually give any examples of, of what kind of great wonders and signs they were talking about. You know? Anyone else? Anything stand out to you moving down to the top section there? I wonder why they, why the opposition arose. Like, why um, were those powerful men getting jealous because they could not perform the signs and wonders? Uh, were they getting jealous because the message he was preaching was really drawing people in? Um, were their own hearts um, pricked that they were fighting internally against the message that they were hearing? You know, because they'd been preaching their own message for so long, and this was in opposition to that. Like, why? Mm. Selfishness and why? power. Well, there's just the power. Yeah. Mm. It all boils down to that, doesn't it? I think yeah. it does. Mm. You know, not wanting to change. And, you know, and maybe... I think where, where I struggle with how we talk about people who don't want to change. Well, you know, we know a lot of people who are decent people who don't want to change from beliefs like that for a good part of their lives. Yeah. And we, we don't judge them as bad people. Um, these leaders, you know, they're, they're doing what they were taught. They went to school for, and they were, they were raised to be a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, what have you. And, you know, they're, they're, they want to defend something that they believe to be right also. So are they necessarily bad people no. for wanting to defend that? Mm -mm. And I think that's, you know, when you hear the term Pharisee, I know when I hear the term Pharisee or Sanhedrin, you think of a bunch of guys wearing, you know, wearing their, their uniforms, you know, wanting to stone people who don't believe like them. But is that necessarily true? You know, there's always, look at Nicodemus. The Nic you never hear much about Nicodemus after Jesus' death. Yeah. But... Kind of wonder, you know, people like him also. You don't hear, did he remain a Pharisee? Did he become a believer? I don't know. Does it say anywhere in the Bible? I, I don't know. But, um, so when you, and I think it's just, I don't know, it's kind of got to be careful with that. Um, the verses that that kind of stood out for me mostly um, were both, you know, I'm going to kind of take a cue from either Matthew or Mark where they talk about early in their writing, their chapter of, uh, and Judas, who turned out to be, you know, mm -hmm. who he was. So mm -hmm. I'm going to sort of skip a little bit here too, but, but, you know, 10, they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and spirit for whom he was speaking. Mm -hmm. And then you go to 15 and all who were sitting in Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw his face, saw his face like the face of an angel. He was proud of who he was and he was taking on Christ's character. Mm -hmm. And then when you go to, uh, uh, chapter 7, line 61 or 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How, how Christ's character can you say this guy is at that right. point? Yep. So, you know, so it's, that's what I got out of this, this guy who is now, mm. he's probably seeing that he's doomed. He's probably seeing that he's going to be executed. He, 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 he kept his thing and he, you know, when you read 7, you know, he talks about, how everything came to be, but he, he held on to his own, he held on to his brothers, and, you know, he knew what was going to happen. So it's pretty awesome because um, it's a, um, like,
like it's an evidence of a real life story of when Jesus talks about like we'll be changed, take on the mind of Christ, we'll see him face to face because we'll be like him. Like all those meta all those statements essentially that the Bible makes, like this is an actual story that shows that it actually like it's actually happening because to your point, Joe, um you know, I also kind of well, I mean that jumped that jumped way ahead, but when it talked about when in chapter seven when we'll get to it where he's yeah he's being stoned and he's saying you know don't hold the sin against him I mean Jesus in essence said the same thing probably for they not know what they they don't know what they're doing you know exactly like there's there was zero zero hard feelings about it mm-hmm. Stephen understood his he was being killed for a much larger purpose much larger thing yeah, it's good I thought it was kind of interesting at the end of here chapter six where it said that he I mean you know they they were trying to drum up all those lies and stuff against him trying to discredit him so when they looked at him his face was glowing yeah like like they couldn't they could drum up lies and try to squelch him but his very countenance was speaking even without him then being able to say a word his God's spirit in him was glowing how cool would that be to glow what other yeah. what other um, story in the Bible comes to mind about that? Moses, Moses was glowing. 100%. He was in God's presence. Yeah. He was glowing. Yeah, Moses, that's Exodus, I think, 34, where I wrote it down. Yeah, Exodus 34, he came down from the mountain Sinai, and the people couldn't even look at him. His face was shining so bright from being in the presence of God, mm-hmm. which is really amazing because was Stephen in the presence of God like Moses? No, he wasn't. However... Stephen was living his life in such harmony and understood God. God so much that God's light was shining through him the same. Like it's, it's pretty powerful. Um, I wanted to, to bring up verse um, 10. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So... I referenced that to Luke chapter 12, where it says that, you know, you will be brought before magistrates and kings and tried, but in that day, don't worry about what you will say. Maybe let's just look it up. Luke 12, um, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So that's Jesus talking there. Right? So I had a couple questions. Does that mean that we don't need to study? Mm What does that mean? So I know there's a lot of people who have different views on that. Some people think, well, you know, the Holy Spirit will just speak right through you and you don't have to worry about it, which he does do. But, you know, my personal view is if you don't, if you don't, if you're not spending time filling your mind with the word of God or understanding of his character, then does the whole can't. Does the Holy Spirit have anything to bring to your mind what to say? 
It's an interesting question, right? So my question to your question is that it seems like you would only be being drugged into court if they felt like you had something to say or that you had already been saying something. Like if you, you've already been filling your, your life with God um, and you're out here ministering, you're kind of involved in the community so that authorities say, hey, I've seen them, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So they m must have something to testify about or, or be accused of like Stephen was mm -hmm. or even Jesus was. Mm -hmm. um, so you could only, to me, you could only get to that point if you had been studying. Mm -hmm. I think in Hebrews, they have the verse there talks about the righteous live by faith. Mm -hmm. The righteous are those who do what's right and they trust God with the outcome, right? So in this, in this, in this concept, you know, if we go back to verse 5, it says that Stephen was already a man full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So he was already full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So I think it's more it's more to the point of I mean we sh we should always be prepared for sure right because if we're not preparing for that test or whatever you know we can't expect to well, you got something Okay so my brain is just went to okay what do we study for to be prepared um, you know there are those who spend all kinds of time studying the ancient things mm -hmm. ancient symbols ancient prophecies that kind of a thing you know um, do you put in depth into that or um, is it that we study to know more and more and more about Christ's character to where we're glowing and they wonder why you know i don't know <laughs> you know what i'm saying like what what do you what do you study it seems like our biggest thing is to study the character of jesus and the character of the father and to be so full of that that people wonder what you're up to i so, don't know so i reference proverbs 9 10 following right up with this whole concept. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So it's the fear of the Lord and knowledge of the Holy One. And John 17.3, Jesus says in his own words, Eternal life is to know you, the one true God. Right? So how do we put all those pieces together and connect it to Stephen's story here? Well, does Stephen fear God like I'm afraid of? So because so to understand that word fear properly, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fear. So if fear equals awe, respect, adoration, reverence, things like that, then what will we do? Right? If I respect Joe, reverence Joe, then what will I do? I'm willing to listen to Joe. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of Joe, right? To think of it in that way. Yeah. Like humans use the term afraid of. Now, let's say that I'm 
man's way of definition of fear. I'm afraid of Joe. Well, then what does that do in me? It triggers, it triggers our fight, flight, or freeze response, right? And then we, we automatically seek to protect ourselves from the fear. And is our hearts opened to receive any kind of destruction? Mm-mm. Not at all. Not at all. And in John, 1 John 4, 18, perfect love casts out all fear, and God is love. So to think about that, Mom, to your point, you made a great, great point. What should we be studying Proverbs 9, 10, because the respect, you know, maybe it could be worded, the respect of the Lord or the awe or the adoration or the right understanding of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When you know who God is, then you understand His purposes, what's, what's happening in reality. And so like Stephen, you begin living your life full of wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, because you're living your life in harmony with all of that. And yeah, man, that will stir up some stuff. Because your life now becomes direct opposition to the lies about God. Any comment? Anyone else have a comment to that? What do you think, Joe? Um, just soaking in it, man. Yeah. So I just find it interesting that so what was, like, why did they even choose Stephen? What was his job? They chose him to take care of widows, right? So overlooking the daily distribution, right? Food, mm-hmm. daily care, right? Like, and it seems like that Stephen was doing more than he was asked to do well, well it also right, says here too maybe they were upset because he wasn't doing the job he they thought he should be doing right because he was you know tasked to take care of widows and here you know great wonders and signs right i think the people he, that he appointed him job not his job no. go ahead joe you had a that, that, yeah i was just going to say i think maybe when you look at verse eight that's why it that's why he was chosen because he was, you know, right. standing above the rest. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, because in up above, in uh, well, verse 5, like, that Stephen is the only one that they give a specific description of, like, why they chose him. All the other guys... Which is also included. Right, just their name. But, like, Stephen had a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And the others are just their names. So, obviously, he was something... So could it be that he had been among them, uh, working with them, but he hadn't really stepped out into a leadership role until they chose him, appointed him to a position, and then all of a sudden, boom, he goes gangbusters. You know what I mean? His spirit's released to really get involved. Two weeks ago, back to to your point, Sarah, about signs and wonders, um, that Stephen was performing many signs and wonders among the people. I mean, if you're handing out food, signs and wonders don't go along with that, right? Unless, you guess uh, unless he's multiplying words right. and fishes like Jesus did. Well, so two weeks ago in our conversation, <laughs> I presented an interesting concept, and this was referring back to chapter 4 of Acts, verse 30, when 
the apostles were praying for boldness. And um, I'll just read verse 29 and verse 30. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness, while you, God, stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So I presented an, a, a, a different perspective on signs and wonders, and I wonder how this connects with this, Sarah. See what you think. A lot of times we think signs and wonders are like miracles. Multiplying loaves, healing the blind, healing the sick. Um, were you here for this, Joe? I think so. Mm -hmm. Two weeks ago, yeah. But I propose this idea that what is a greater sign or wonder? Healing someone who's sick? Multiplying loaves and fishes? Giving someone sight? Or changing a mortal enemy to a most trusting friend? The heart change. Which one is more of a wonder? I think that was the one we kind of laid upon on that one. We did. We got a little a little stuck on that because it's an interesting concept. But but God does lots of wonders, but his primary purpose is, is not our physical healing. It's our heart transformation. It's it's having the mind of Christ. It's turning enemies to friends. Right? So what if Stephen's role here is just by his being the hands and feet and serving and taking care of the daily activities and things like that, that he is he is demonstrating the knowledge of God and living out the purposes of Christ so much that he's, the signs and wonders that he is performing are that people's hearts are being changed by his influence on a, on a magnificent scale. Right? Just an interesting thought to consider. Mm -hmm. I should say that that's a thought that I'm considering in wrestling. I guess I just look at what they were accusing him of. Now I want you to clarify. Do you are you suggesting that the people who were accusing Stephen are the same who chose? No. Okay, different group of people. No. Okay. Like I look at what they're accusing him of. You know, down like starting in um, eleven, because you know normally when somebody you know. The the best way to get people to believe, right, what right. you're saying, is to put a tiny bit of truth into it, mm -hmm. right, and then twist it. put lies around it, right, and then twist it into a lie. He's here. Oh. Um, so when, you know, like they're saying, he's speaking against Moses and God. And then they said that they provide false witness. This man never stopped speaking against this holy place in the law. And we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down. Like, I think that maybe gives us a little bit of a, a, you know, idea of maybe what they were talking or what he was maybe, you know. There's a little bit of truth in that, right? Mm -hmm. But that really wasn't his intention. Right. right? They twisted it to be a lie. Right. You know. Because that's the best way, right? Like, you put a little bit of truth. And like, oh, yeah, that seems reasonable. That seems possible. But then you twist it into be a lie. Yeah, if it's so egregious right. and ridiculous. Right, it can't be insane. Exactly. People are like, that's ridiculous. That's right. not, you know, Stephen. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly the method that Satan used to start 
coercing the angels and, and turning all of that because he was just mixing a little bit of this to insinuate that God can't be trusted and then people sort of, wow, that actually almost sounds like it could be right and, and all this stuff, you know. Yeah. Hmm. I did a quick search, Sarah, to your point about the false witness. And I found, and there are several examples throughout Scripture of this taking place. We, we know that it took place in Jesus' time. There's some listed in Mark 14. There's some listed in Matthew 26 where people were, you know, bearing fault listening against Jesus. He said, destroy this temple in three days and this, that, and the other. And when they went on and on about it. Another one was in 1 Kings in the Old Testament with the guy, a guy named Naboth. N-A-B-O-T-H. How do you pronounce that name? Naboth, you think? Sounds good. Sounds good. And Queen Jezebel, and she she brought up a whole bunch of people, and, and the way the Old Testament was worded was, get two worthless people, worthless, they use that term, to stand on either side of Naboth at the head of this feast, the head of the table, and tell these two worthless people to tell this lie about Naboth. And and they did. They fought against Naboth, they told this lie about him, and they ended up killing Naboth. All because it was orchestrated by this this whole process, yeah, and then in, and Paul as well in Acts twenty seven. When we get to that at some point in the future, um, they did the same thing to Paul. They brought false witness against him, and they started telling all these lies about him. And there's a bunch of bunch of error mixed with the truth, and 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 and, and that is Satan's method right there. We're we're watching it play out. We're watching it play out. Any other um, any other thoughts here? Moving on toward the end of the chapter here. Um, I thought one thing was really interesting. Verse thirteen. That, or sorry, verse fourteen. They're continuing on with their false witness narrative. Check verse fourteen. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. What did Jesus say? Didn't Jesus himself say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it? Yeah. So isn't it weird how the false witness people here in Acts, who are up against Stephen, are, right, quoting the truth, right, destroy this place, but then they're adding a falsehood to it. Exactly. They're not, like, that is what happens. Right. Right, what they're saying, but, like, they're adding lies to it. Yeah. They're adding yeah. lies to something that actually did happen. Yeah. Yeah. And is truthful. Twisting it, yeah. So how can we, you know, to try to bring this down, you know, put a ribbon around the conversation, how can we go about life differentiating between the truth from the false and how they mix together so easily? Well, you know, the old cliche, somewhere in the, in the middle is the truth when you hear a bunch of lies being spread about certain people. And, you know, somewhere in the middle could be the, could be the truth. I think the actual cliche is the truth, but that's not always true. Um, but, you know, it's just uh, you know, these people have an axe to grind for whatever reason. Um, Tim Jennings has a quote that I really enjoy, and he says, Truth loses nothing by close investigation. Take the time to check something out. Ask questions. Because what happens when you're asking a liar questions. What do they do? They stutter, stammer, 
or get more angry or get yeah. more rageful yes. or spin yeah. you around because the last thing they want to do is be found out that they're a liar. Yeah. Or lie, lie more. Or lie more. There you go. Yeah. But if you're asking the truth, questions to involve the truth, what do you get? More truth. More information, more facts. Yeah. More facts, more information. And so, in fact, if you were to... And, and what you're finding here as we're going through these things is that people try to shut up. They're trying to silence Stephen, who is teaching the truth. He's showing the truth. They're trying to silence him. They eventually did. They eventually killed him. Same with Jesus. Same right, when you can't reason. Yep. Like, your lie against the truth, then you have to end it somehow, right? Or be exposed in your lie. Let's pray. Good talk, guys. Father, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you that we can learn so much from just a simple story and a simple passage. And the more, the deeper we dig, the the, the, the richer riches we find. And uh, I pray that you'll bless the food that we're going to eat soon. And as we grow in our understanding relationship with you um, we may live our lives like Stephen just demonstrating your truth everywhere we go in your name we pray amen amen, amen. amen.